Welcome to Local Environment Heroes. I'm Ryan. I'm Julie, and this is episode three. Episode three, episode our three. second real interview. Yes, which we're is not exciting to each other. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we actually, we actually are bringing guests in. I know, and today we've got a big one. Huge. Yes, you're gonna love this. We enjoyed it. I like I. Yeah, I was actually pleased at the end when we kept talking and the person who he interviewed um, said it even brought him to feel a little bit of emotion at the end and a little bit of, um, yeah, I think there's a little bit in there for everyone. So who is our guest? So we have Mark Howden joining us today. Professor Professor Mark Mark Howden, Howden. who is the director of the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions at ANU. And that's a big title, big department big issue um, and so he's directing that as well as being a vice chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change which you might also know as the IPCC, um, an organisation, a United Nations organisation which he's been a part of for over 30 years. Yeah, there's a few other things he does like he's a member of the ACT Climate Change Council mm-hmm. um, and as we found out at the end and it's a shame um, we didn't actually talk about this in the podcast. We need to get him back on, I think, where he was talking about how he also helped set up the Farmers... Farmers for Climate Farmers Action. Farmers for Climate Action, yeah. which is pretty impressive. So he's worked in climate science, climate change, innovation, um, adaptation issues for over 30 years. Um, yeah. Which is incredible. Like He's got an incredible wealth of history, understanding, knowledge, um, yeah. and such a... Like such a generous spirit, I have to say. Yeah, I would say if not, oh, he's one of, if not the leading mind on greenhouse gas emission uh, research and science that informs the decisions that are made on a global scale, let's say, yeah. <laughs> by other nations. Yeah. Um, but he's worked on, on climate change for 30 years in partnership with industry, community, policy groups. Um, I first saw him talk at the National Land Care Conference in Brisbane in 2018. And what struck me most was that he's a scientist, right? But he was a very effective communicator. Um, and he gets around and, and speaks to anyone that will listen, essentially, which is, is also really special. But what really struck me was that he's been forecasting, he's been making these forecasts for 20, 30 years, and he's now watching them come to fruition and seeing this happen, uh, which must be pretty mind-boggling, Um yeah, especially since we're so slow to change and to, to listen to him perhaps at a at a policy level. Yes, it's twofold. Like you'd be pretty proud that your science was right. Yeah. And then you'd be pretty sad. <laughs> that it was right. That it was right <laughs> and that it wasn't acted upon sooner. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think my key takeaway from this podcast is that we have an absolute gem of a human being who mm. is – so authentic in what he mm. um, what he says and what he does. Like I think the stories that he's going to tell us that we're going to hear soon about um, that you're going to hear soon about how he he strives to um, live out what he believes is in important yeah. and integral to him is like it's just it's so heartwarming. As I said at the end of the conversation, um, like it just left me feeling really full. Like a great, yeah. full conversation. Yeah. He's a beautiful, authentic man. Um, he's walking the walk. Yeah. So let's uh, get into it. Let's get into it. Uh, Mark Howden on the Local Environment Heroes podcast. Local Environment Heroes. 
cows saving the trees and the bees and doing it daily. We thought we'd start with a bit of background, Mark. Um, twofold, how long has Canberra been home for you? And what was it like growing up before the climate crisis? Great questions. So I, I moved here in 1990, expecting to be here for about three or four years, and uh, and I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that's a common so story. <laughs> it is, and uh, um, I, I really saw it initially as a, a waypoint on, on a career move, like I... I uh, uh, was in Queensland and wanted to move closer to my girlfriend in Sydney, and uh, and and so this was where I, I got a job, and in particular I wanted to work on science policy, and uh, and so there was an interesting job going at the time, and so so I moved here, and uh, and since then I've become a confirmed Canberran. And, uh, and what was it like before the um, the climate crisis? Well, um, I, I guess it was normal. In a, in a sense, you know, like uh, um, that it, clearly climate change is, was happening in the, in the duration where I was a kid, and uh, um, uh, but but it was in a sense not quite so noticeable either in the physical sense, you know, like what we're observing in the climate change, uh, and, and certainly not in in the political and social context that it is currently, and and so to some extent uh, we, we were. Um, uh, in a committing grave acts of consequence for the planet without knowing about those and 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 I think myself like everyone was was party to that because we we didn't realize the consequence of the coal-fired power that we used when we turn on the lights etc and uh, and so it's, there was a degree of um, uh, you know ignorance whether it was willful or not um, which which I think we're paying the consequences for now mm. And at what stage did you start to get interested in this um, this concept of climate change? Well, I recall writing an essay on it uh, when I was probably in year 11, I think it was. So I had a fantastic uh, geography teacher called uh, Milton Brown. And and it was um he, he was great he he expanded the range of of people's thinking and and I remember writing a, an essay on climate change, um back then and so so that was embarrassingly <laughs> in, in the nineteen seventies, and um but but the, the the telling point there is that if if a school kid in the seventies knew enough about climate change, um why the hell has it taken us so long to act on it? I think the other point there too is. The role of education and the role of a teacher in expanding your mind and and letting you explore the options and the possibilities and the dangers and all of that that goes along with it. I think you know great education is a fantastic tool, uh, and and a great teacher is absolutely invaluable. And you started working off in soil conservation and agriculture, was it? That is a long time ago. So it was a holiday job when I was at university. And so uh, I, I was um, studying what what has since become environmental science, but it was actually, I did the degree before there was such a thing as environmental studies uh, at university. So I studied geography, uh, which included soil science, climatology, you know, understanding plant ecology and similar things. And, and as part of that, I, I looked at what was going on in our landscapes because uh, I, I lived on the northern beaches of Sydney and, uh, and, and I was very interested in uh, the processes of degradation and what we were trying to do to stop those. And so I, I actually uh, got a holiday job with the Soil Conservation Service 
and and my my job there primarily was to uh, map out uh, areas of what was called protected lands. So it was uh, legislated lands which were above eighteen degrees uh, because they needed to be treated uh, gently. And uh, and so I'd I'd do lots of um, aerial photo mapping and then go out and field check uh, what I'd what I'd mapped. And and so so through that process, I, I got to see a whole stack of places in New South Wales that I never otherwise would have. So so it was you know interesting work. I learnt, but I but I also had a lot of fun. Yeah. Wow. Were those links becoming clear to you at that time between the the soil health and the way we were treating the land and the the changing climate? Not so much climate change at that point, um, but certainly the consequences of not treating our soils well uh, were were beginning to, uh, I guess, raise themselves in the public consciousness. And that's why we actually had an institution like the Soil Conservation Service, because there was a broadly understood um, uh, view that uh, the soil was vital, um, not not just to farming practices, but for also many other things as well. I don't know whether the Soil Conservation Society still exists. Does it? No, no, it's long, it's long gone. And yeah. I assume something even better replaced it. I couldn't tell you what replaced <laughs> it. So it's probably it probably got absorbed into the Department of Agriculture, New yeah. South Wales Department of Ag, and and then you know morphed into various other things. But uh, uh, but but if you go back sort of to those d- days, we actually had in a sense, a, a much richer institutional um, landscape than we do now. So, so we had things like the Soil Conservation Service and other agencies which actually had a, a much more targeted uh, remit than a lot of the institutions we see now. And so, so to some extent, we've, we've blurred out some of the, the important things. Um, and then after that, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, You've been involved since 1991, mm. uh, which is over 30 years. Um, what are the biggest changes you've seen <laughs> over that time? And I know that might be a big question. <laughs> changes in the IPCC? Uh, yeah, well, in the uh, science of climate, yeah. like how climate has been spoken about, I guess. Okay. Radio, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do the changes in the IPCC and okay. then I'll get to that. So uh, IPCC, so when I first engaged, so that was um, you know, a long time ago, and uh, and, and it was very much seen as a, as a, um, a you know, a bit of a strange scientific oddity almost. Uh, you know, climate change didn't have the political sort of impetus that it does now. And uh, and, and in particular, I, I engaged on two different processes around that. One was the second assessment report, so that was assessing climate impacts and you know the climate changes, the impacts, and the adaptation side of things. Um, but I. The, my main role in those early days with IPCC was in relation to the greenhouse gas inventories. So, so I, I helped set up the greenhouse inventories both globally and nationally, and uh, and so I. Can you uh, just tell us a little bit about what what they are for people who might not know? Yeah, the, the greenhouse gas inventories are essentially uh, the, the mechanism by which we calculate how much, say, Australia produces in terms of carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide, etc., from the different sectors, you know, from transport and from electricity, from agriculture, etc. And in particular, I worked on the agriculture area, but not exclusively on that. And, and it was really interesting uh, that uh, some of the things that I introduced into that uh, process, the structure of the inventories, uh, remains to this day. And, uh, and so, um, uh, so it's, it's really interesting when I, I hear my, my words and ideas bounced back at me, you know, over a 30-year period. You know? So it's, it's quite, uh, quite sort of 
it makes one reflect, I guess, on <laughs> on, the, on on one's life. But um, so so what's happened in the IPCC is as as is the uh, as the um, political implications, economic implications of climate change have built, uh, what we've seen is it moving from, to some extent, a science oddity uh, into very mainstream science, but also a lot, lot more um, interaction with policy and industry with that science. And so, so they're no longer... Uh, sort of, um, you know, independent uh, receivers of information, but they actually are generators of information and they're part of co-designing solutions. And so so we've seen a much, much more complex uh, set of interactions occurring between the science uh, and the policy end of the spectrum. And, of course, in that time, there's a huge amount more understanding of, of the climate change topic um, since, you know, 30 years ago. And... and in, in one way, that, that's been great because it's given us a huge amount more uh, information to help make decisions, uh, effective decisions. Um, but at the same time, it, it, uh, it's pretty clear that we've known for at least 20 years uh, enough about climate change to make the decisions we need to make. And it's only now um, that we see uh, governments and industry actually starting to make those. And so to some extent, we've lost 20 years. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask, I've, I've seen you present a couple of times and I've, I've seen the graphs and I've seen your predictions come true. How does that feel to, to have lost those 20 years when you were kind of saying 20 years ago, hey, over here, there's something going on? Yeah. Well, well, on the one hand, it, it's sort of gratifying to see the predictions <laughs> are pretty, pretty accurate. Um, and, and if anything, uh, the world is changing faster um, than many of those predictions would have indicated. And so climate change is hitting us faster and harder than we would have projected. Um, but, but of course, the, the, the other element of the emotion is uh, incredible frustration um, that... Uh, in a sense that these were predictable, um, these changes, um, they were avoidable and, uh, and they're far from inconsequential. You know, they're, they're really quite crucial to Australia's future and, and in many ways the, the, the future we're heading at with climate change is, a, I, I think, a future that most Australians don't want. And, and, and I think Australians get this, is that when you do look at surveys like the Lowy Institute survey, consistently now 90% of Australians uh, want more action on climate change. Um, so in a sense, Australians get climate change is, is something we don't want. We, we, we don't want to go there, but, uh, but there's a big gap between what, they want, you know, what the public wants and what they're actually getting from our policy processes and other processes. Mm, mm. What's in the way, Mark? Yeah, I wanted to ask that question, but it's a very big question, isn't it? If you could put your finger on like one thing that, needs to change or that you know is that crucial leverage point there's always resistance to change <clears throat> but uh, but in this particular case uh, we've got uh, in industries particularly uh, incumbent industries uh, which uh, have preference in terms of political decision making compared with the uh, the emergent industries or maybe even the industries that sh- are beyond emergent they simply don't exist and so uh, so it's just like uh, we we've been trained to think about intergenerational intergenerational equity you know so we not only have to look after the people on earth now but also future generations some of whom haven't even been born um, we've been trained to think about that in terms of human uh, relationships um, but not in terms of uh, business or industry or, or governmental relationships so we're almost wedded to the way things are 
rather than take into account the way things could be. And, and you know, so industries which don't have a voice and peoples and, and, and you know, other uh, um, sort of parts of the earth system which don't have a voice um, just don't get a look in. And, and consequently, I think we've been making suboptimal decisions for a long time. So our systems in place are very short term, whereas we all know we need to be looking long term, but we're struggling to look long term because we just don't have the ability and the mechanisms we've got at the moment are limiting us. There's the short termism, uh, and that's definitely part of it. And we've seen, I think, contraction in the, the in the political uh, window that uh, people observe. And uh, but but at the same time, it's it's. Bigger than that, uh, it's uh, it's it's become sort of almost invisible in how we make decisions. That uh, particularly in the Western world, we we actually uh, almost discount out of the, the discount the future out of existence, and so um, so we've sort of uh, gone down the pathway of, of uh, project based financial uh, accounting and, and applied that to life. And it's a really dumb idea. Um, you know, the future will happen, and and there will be people there. And, and we have to take into account their needs and the needs of ecosystems as well. And, um, and, and at the moment, it's not just the short-termism, but it's the lack of a voice. So, so what we see in some countries, such as New Zealand, uh, they've actually started to give, in a sense, ecosystems a voice through, um, through actually uh, giving the same rights as humans to catchments uh, in New Zealand. So where there's decisions which are made which may actually harm the catchment, that catchment, in a sense, now has a legal voice to defend itself. So really innovative ideas um, that actually give voice to the voiceless. And so we need to be focused more on that too, is that...? I think it's part of it, yeah. um, but you know, there's a whole range of things which I think have to happen, and, and that's, but I think that's part of it, yeah. Mm, it seems like our climate emergency has highlighted problems with our, both our dem- democratic system and our economic processes are we able to do the work that needs to be done within those systems as they exist now? Look, I'm, I'm always optimistic and, uh, and I think I have to be to <laughs> handled handled this stuff. But uh, look, we, we by and large actually know pretty much what to do um, uh, and we mostly know how to do it. Uh, we just haven't got, in many cases, the political will. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the federal government or governments at other levels. Political in the sense of we're all engaged in politics. We all make decisions about winners and losers in our lives. And uh, and so we need to be thinking about um, that much richer uh, vein of politics in which we engage and, and how we actually change things. And so it's, it's not, by no means a given that uh, change processes always um, make everyone better off. Um, uh, what we have to do is be smart enough to make sure as many people and as many systems um, are better off when we actually do those change processes. And that means we all have to play a part. So what part are you playing, Mark? Like you're clearly out there talking about the climate science, but you were telling us before we went to air that there's a lot of things you're doing in your home life that are really like, looking for change at a personal level. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so my, my day job, of course, is, is uh, doing research on, on, on climate and climate change impacts and uh, and adoption of ideas and science policy and putting together frameworks for better uh, science policy interactions and similar things. 
and and so and, and I'm heavily invested in that you know like I've I've uh, engaged in that for many many years with uh, you know all sorts of industry groups and and community groups and uh, and, and I and I talk with talk with those groups uh, a lot you know so so I make myself very accessible to to different groups so within the last um, three weeks I think I've done five different sort of community presentations or industry presentations. And so, so, so I really sort of um, pitch in there and try to do my part of. of uh, it's it's not so much about changing things, um, except in what I'm trying to do is make sure that people have uh, make informed decisions and informed and equitable decisions. I guess is is perhaps expanding that. So, so what I try to do though is is make my, my the rest of my life um, uh, sort of at least somewhat congruent with with my my professional life and so um so you know at home we, we have an, an old uh, weatherboard house uh, 1927 house uh and in ainsley um leaky and cold in winter no matter how much insulation you put in it um uh but we've we've maxed out on solar panels so we've got 28 solar panels on our roof we've got a big battery i'm just about to get an ev which can use that um, battery more eff- effectively um, not not that I drive much because I ride to work every day and and um, and so I thoroughly enjoy the ride and but uh, but for you know doing the shopping and driving the kids to soccer and those sorts of things uh, a vehicle's very handy and uh, and I think you know I'm, I'm going down the EV route even though it's quite expensive but um, but it's it's really important to make that move. Uh, we we I, I grow large amounts of vegetables. So I've got um, about um, uh, now. Up, getting up to seven wicking beds, and I run two different hydroponic systems. Uh, I grow my own olives and and various types of fruit and herbs and things. So almost every meal, every dinner we have, we'll have something from the garden in it. And um, this year, for the first time, I, I, I grew cayenne peppers and made my own cayenne pepper. You know, dried wow. them out and and put them through the spice grinder, and and it's actually. So so much better than any cayenne yeah, pepper yeah. I've ever tried before. It looks much better and it tastes so much better. It's it's fantastic. Um, and we've got chickens in the backyard for eggs, and uh, and, and um, I make my own beer, and uh, as well as drink at Bent Spoke, which is my favourite brewery. <laughs> and uh, um, and 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 sort of just try to to um, not just you know uh, make those things locally and. Uh, um, you know, and from our own patch, but I go out and harvest the the plums from the the street trees and make um, plum jam, which I give to Chris as Christmas presents every every year, and things like that. So it's sort of trying to expand the garden out into the the neighbourhood and do the sort of urban foraging thing. And so so that's sort of important. But I think it's also important to send signals to uh, you know my children mm. um, and my colleagues and uh, you know others, my neighbours who I give produce to, um, which is about you know they can do that too. Is that um, you know it, it doesn't take that much to actually turn a even a small backyard into a highly productive space. Yeah, yeah. Um, slightly more not serious, but in a different kind of linked um, question. We probably should have started off with the fact that you won Nobel Prize in two thousand and seven. I, I shared shared a shared Prize. a Nobel Prize. <laughs> Should I like to say who you shared it with? I <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, was with the other IPCC participants in Al Gore, so that was. Uh, back in the um, heady days Huge. where Al Gore seemed to actually have some traction. Yeah, yeah, massive, like massive. So that's 
big shout out to you, like incredible and incredible that you are in Canberra and such an amazing person to have at our doorstep. And the amount of work you're involved in and the amount of work you produce and the fact you give up your time so freely and then all of that work you've just told us about running a household garden, that takes time and effort. It's not something that just happens overnight. So based on that, when do you sleep like, and how much sleep a night do you get? Because this is just like, this is phenomenal what you are doing. Look, look, there's a there's an old adage which is if you want something done, give it to a bit busy person, yeah. and and you, you just find find ways of you know splicing things together, and 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 the little slivers of time get occupied. Uh, look, I I I don't feel at all hard done by <laughs> like I, I get you know apart from the possums in the roof and <laughs> a few things like that. You know, I, I get a good night's sleep and uh, um, and I spend time with the kids and, and cook with the kids and I do a fair bit of housework. Probably not enough, according to my wife. But, um, uh, yeah, and, and uh, you know, and all the other things that are important to life, you know, friend friendships and, uh, you know, activities of different types, so, like hiking and so stuff. So I'm fascinated by this because I feel... You, given what you know and given the work that you're involved in on a day-to-day basis, I feel, and Ryan and I have often spoken about this, that it's it's hard sometimes to get up in the morning and it's hard sometimes to just keep going and especially given you've been doing this for years and, you know, doing an amazing job. And I think here you're talking, you're showing us that having the balance, like actually well, caring for yourself and caring for the people around you whilst doing this really important work that is earth changing, like it is, it's important to keep that balance. Have you, have you, is that how you approach it? Is that what you think about? Oh, very much so. So, you know, for example, I see, uh, you know, mucking around in the garden is, is uh, you know, a really important uh, component of, of having a balance. You know, it's time out uh, where, where my mind's on something completely different and uh, and, and doing, uh, you know, physical work rather than sort of sitting at a desk type work or talking to people um, type work. And, uh, yeah, and, and so, so from my perspective, the balance is really a critical part of that. And, and of course, that balance changes. Um, you know, it was different when the kids were young than when they are now, and uh, different times of life, it's, it, it changes. And, and so, there's no hard and fast rules. But I, I do think um, that the you, you have to sort of keep yourself healthy, uh, mentally, um, you know, emotionally healthy, if you're to be effective. And uh, and, and I think that. Um, is, is a good message to people that you don't have to um, flog yourself to uh, you know to sort of have impact. I think um, you just work very efficiently when you work and and you prioritise um, and uh, and just try to be as organised as you can in a somewhat chaotic world that we live in. And uh, um, and and sometimes there's things you don't get to. Um, like I mean, a part of part of it is accepting uh you can say no to things um and accepting some of the things occasionally that say yes to are things you can't fulfill and so you you apologize and and explain the situation and 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 hope that that's adequate um but uh but i think you you know you you always always sort of um uh approach the whole thing with respect respect for yourself and respect for others and respect for the earth that's fantastic that's really quite moving Mm. How important are those household actions that you talked about, the sustainable home? A lot of our audience are trying to improve, um, lower their own emissions at a household level, at an individual level, in the face of some of the, the much bigger problems we have. How important is the sustainable home? 
Uh, it's sort of hard to know because, you know, politicians often play the games of, oh, you know, Australia's too small to matter type thing. And you can you can play that those numbers games regardless. And in fact, just last year, uh, the president of the US said, oh, the US emissions are too small to matter. So, <laughs> and so, so you can see how ridiculous that argument can be. Um, you know, my view is that in the end, every bit of greenhouse gas that we emit is sheeted home to someone somewhere. Um, so whether it's a, an Inuit person in Canada or it's an Australian here in Canberra, is that um, all, all of those greenhouse emissions or, or other environmental harms in some way um, are sheeted home to someone in, in, you know, in one way or another. And, and that actually means that in a sense we're all part of the problem but it also means that we can all be part of the solution. And so, so from my perspective, yeah, let's take little steps um, which, which not only um, clean up our own act, um, but which make us good feel good. And, and then tell some people about that. You know, <laughs> you know tell your neighbours um, what you're doing and, you know, hey, the reason why you're, you're hearing you know, me working in the garden is because I'm uh, you know, planting tomatoes or something like that. And uh, engage with people. And, uh, and so just sort of, um, you know, lift, the whole game um, through those conversations, um, big and small, and through all of those actions, big and small. So, so for me, it's not about guilt. It's not about um, sort of being, uh, you know, righteous or anything like that. Um, it's just about saying, okay, well, by doing this, um, uh, you know, can I actually make myself feel better, and can I actually do some good? So inherently, you seem to be a very positive or optimistic person. I think this is the vibe we're getting here. Um, when it comes to communicating climate change and the perhaps terribleness that could be upon us, what what do you think are the pros and cons or what, what's better, giving people, just giving people information or putting a positive spin on it or putting a negative spin on it? What would encourage or what do you think has the most, has the most impact on, a, on another person? Oh, it's a great question, and there's been quite a bit of work done on this uh, by much smarter psychologists and, and social scientists than, than, than I, who am very amateur <laughs> in that game. Um, my, my take on it always is uh, that it has to be a balance. You know, there is a balance between sort of concern and hope, and, and we, we, we have to have both. Uh, you know, one without the other can lead to sort of problematic uh, um, positioning of people. It's it's not just though about that. I, what I often try to do when I would talk with people is I, I actually start from a point that they know um, before I move to a point where it's uncertain for them or where they don't know. And so so you start from from the known before you move into the unknown. And so 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 that that's how I sort of almost like a, a matrix approach where 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 yes, it's the balance of concern and hope, but it's also moving from the known to the unknown, uh, moving from what people are doing to what they could be doing. Yeah. Why is it so hard for us to connect uh, what you do know with our decision makers? Um, yeah, well, I, I think I mentioned before about incumbency yes, of, of, of different industries, and so so I think that that has particular impacts in our, in our democracy at the moment because uh, I think we're seeing a, an erosion of our democracy that uh, the um, the power of the voter is is diminished, um, uh, you know, at you know. 
uh, you know, in a way because um, the the power of special interest groups is is expanding, and so um, so I think we've, we do have a I wouldn't say a crisis of democracy, but certainly an erosion of democracy at this point in time. And so, uh, you know, my own view is democracy is a is a treasure which we need to protect and 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 foster. And so, so that's quite disturbing from my perspective. Maybe I can follow on with so perhaps in in nations that are ahead of us in dealing with emissions, is that are they exemplary of a better democracy perhaps or or less incumbency of industry? Um, what are they doing that we could look to? Yeah, I guess um, there are some some standouts, and, and particularly the Scandinavian countries, and uh, and uh, those countries, I guess, have a strong history of social democracy, and and you know slightly left of where Australia is, and and that that means to some extent that uh, people are prepared to give up the individual in a little bit of a way to the collective, and so so you actually contribute to the collective. And by doing that, you're all better off, um, rather than the individualistic sort of approach. And and in, and if you actually think about that, that's exactly what we need from climate change. Uh, we we need to recognise our own individual contributions, um, take action to reduce those, uh, because that's actually contributing to the collective. So, um, and and climate change solutions um, have to be a collective action. So it's a, a collective action problem, and it has to have collective action solutions. So that that's fundamentally the big thing you know some other um, uh, countries like the UK um, you know they've got uh, good action on climate change because of bilateral agreements so both sides of the politics tend to agree that's more of a historical um, chance or you know because uh, uh, the the conservatives wanted to get rid of the coal miners <laughs> and so so you know they 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 wanted to sort of push to alternative energy uh, sources um, and so that lined up with the sort of progressive uh, you know concerns um, about climate and environment and so um, so that that is more a, a political happenstance rather than some sort of automatic thing but but it works for them and so so they've actually found common cause there and they both see both sides of politics see advantage in being proactive and positive about climate change and it's positive in the sense of acting against it and so so we don't have the sort of um, partisan ping pong that we have had in Australia where it uh, sort of bounces from you know one side to another and without any middle ground being uh, adopted. I think we might move on to our hero I questions. I think we're ready for our five set questions. Yes, um, it's time to talk about the future. Okay, I'm going to ask the first one. So, congratulations. Um, you have just been elected president of the world. What is the one change that you try to implement first? I, th I think if you asked me this uh, two dozen times on two dozen days, I would give you a different answer every time. <laughs> um, but, uh, like, I guess just sort of riffing off one of my previous answers, um, I think if if I could actually generate um, respect, that would be what I'd be after. Um, respect and, and for the, each other and respect for the planet. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so I think well, it's it's respect for each other and for the planet, but also also respect for the um, different societies that we've actually constructed that respond to different values um, and that embed different values. And so, so it's it's actually. Um, about um, acknowledging difference, um, but also resolving difference, and 
Uh, and so, um, so that that's probably would be my choice today. Mm, that's a great answer. I think we could all do with a lot of respect in our in our world. Yes, that's at the basis. Mm. Mm. Well, um, we've, let's imagine it's twenty thirty. Um, I think we've picked you as a bit of an optimist, but um, let's describe the world that you see around you in twenty thirty. We we won't have unfortunately taken enough action to to prevent um, a, a range of environmental and social uh, um, bads occur. So so I think in twenty thirty we will have continued on our pathway in terms of of climate change, uh, and we will be pretty close to one point five degrees as an average temperature, which is you know the lower limits of the sort of dangerous temperature envelope that we see. And so I think we will be suffering significantly from uh, climate change and and those consequences will uh, be mounting and accelerating. And so we will have to have uh, mounted and, and accelerated our responses in terms of emission reduction and ad- adaptation. But we're um, in 2030, at that point, we will be well behind the eight ball um, and, and we will be very much in catch-up mode to, to prevent even worse damage. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I think I'm a bit of a pessimist on the on the biodiversity front, and uh, and I think the the pressures that are pushing uh, species, you know, towards extinction or to is threatened status uh, will will have continued, and we won't have put in the efforts that are needed to do that. I'm I'm hopeful though um, that by 2030 we actually will have realised that uh, we do need to change um, and that there is not only a preparedness to change, um, but there's whole new industries and uh, new segments of society that are built around that change um, that that is actually starting to um, find much, much better ways of delivering the same things that we've had before, you know, so that gives us our quality of life, say, here in Canberra, which is astounding, um, but actually uh, invents new ways of doing things, um, which actually mean you get quality of life, but through alternatives. And, and in particular, um, thinking about uh, how we can have very low impact things which generate um, a huge amount of enjoyment. And so so in many ways, uh, you know, moving to a more um, experience-based society and uh, one where the arts are valued more and um, you know, similar things in it so that we, we actually do, um, you know, not only have uh, reduced footprint, but we actually have much more enjoyable lives. Yeah, definitely. Let's hope that is, <coughs> that is 2030. So who are your environmental heroes or who are your heroes in this space that you work in? Are there people that you look up to that you've always looked up to? Has that changed over time? Like who, who is it that Mark is, is wanting the autograph of? <laughs> uh, I, think, I think probably, uh, probably my uh, you know, all-time heroes um, uh, include Nelson Mandela and, and also Barack Obama and... Um, so, so in fact, uh, um, uh, going back some years, I, I was on on the um, US Third National Climate Assessment Advisory Board, which is h- highly unusual that you get a foreigner, you know, an alien in American terms, um, actually on one of these advisory things. So I actually um, became a special agent of the US to actually <laughs> join that. And um, uh, I... As a, as a result of that input, I actually got a hand-signed letter of thanks 
from Barack Obama. <laughs> which, what do you value more, that or the Nobel Prize? Uh, my, well, I can tell you my kids thought the Barack Obama <laughs> thing <laughs> was much cooler than the Nobel Prize. But, but, but both are, in, are framed on the wall and, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, I think were highlights of my life. And, um, yeah, and so, so I think um, both of them, uh, you know, have you know, top billing for me in, in terms of, of uh, um, you know, sort of overall um, status in that respect. Um, but there's there's many, many other people around who, who I think are outstanding, um, who who I think, um, you know, not necessarily well-known, but, but each, you know, contribute um, uh, in their own way. And, and it probably, it's, it's probably an important point because... Um, from my perspective, leadership can come from anyone, anywhere. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think we've always toyed with the idea of this, uh, the podcast being called Heroes because it's not, it's not necessarily heroes as in people that are leaders that everyone knows their name. It's like individuals and heads of organisations and all the other people around them that are doing everyday things in their everyday lives. They're the stories that that are awesome to find and tell. That's right. And leading change, positive change in their own in their own domains and, and, and not expecting anything for it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. All right, moving on to our next question, Special Agent Mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your hot tip for our listeners for being more environmentally friendly? Um, figure out what impact you're having now um, and, then, and then start a, a, a bit of a priority list uh, and, and and look at it. Uh, so that's a, a first step. Um, secondly, ask your kids or your your partner or or your friends um, uh, how good you are um, in environmental terms, and 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 listen to their answer because their answer might be quite different from your own perspective. Um, and then when they've done that, uh, commit to them that you'll actually uh, do better. I like that. Auditing yourself. Yeah. Is there, is there a particular tool that people can use to audit, like to assess their emissions, for example? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, that the ABC's Planet America. Oh, sorry, um, Planet A, Planet B. Yeah. Um, I can't remember which one it was. There is no Planet <laughs> but uh, B, yeah, there is that that one. Yeah, <laughs> um, that uh, um, ran on TV. Uh, the, so that that had had various um, you know audit tools that you could do, uh, and there there are a whole stack of online uh, you know greenhouse gas calculators uh, and such like. I think some of them are easier to use than others. So find out which ones are easy to use and and give you answers in metric you know Australian units, yeah. not not in US units, because that's pretty frustrating when you you get quarts or gallons or something like that. So the key is to set yourself a target and to meet that target and then improve on that target. Indeed. And so, imagine, so it's baseline. that happened elsewhere. Just, just putting it out there. <laughs> well, we, we, we have actually run, uh, you know, a, a range of different sort of processes where we lead people through uh, sort of, an, uh, um, uh, you know, an information-rich pa- package and process where, where uh, people um, understand things like energy usage more and then we can actually uh, compare uh, the pre uh, energy use with post um, experience energy use, and 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 we can get very uh, sub- substantial reductions, uh, which which are persistent. So so when people uh, are confronted with what they do, and and then find better ways of doing it, so um, they, then you know they can stick with that because because often the better ways of doing it um, are advantageous in all sorts of ways. So. Um, 
so so you know, you know one one example would be uh, um, if you if you actually um, you know step from uh, driving a car to go to the shops etc and and you know go, get on a bike and then all of a sudden uh, you know the bike ride becomes a really enjoyable thing uh, where you you know not only get a bit of exercise you save a bit of money uh, you get to observe what's happening in the neighborhood you might even speak to the neighbors uh, um, and uh, you know you smell the roses and and, and get the fresh air and all of, all of a sudden the car doesn't look so appealing yeah. so why go back I really like the idea, it's so scientific, of calculating your emissions and then working to knock them down. It's not one particular action, it's being aware of what you are emitting and we all need to, to lower those and to work on that. Yeah. Simple, huh? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, and I think the, there's a bit of there's psychology that comes into this in various ways. So, so you can, where, where you make a commitment yourself to, re, say, reduce your emissions in this case, um, we, we can easily ignore that, just like we ignore New Year's Eve um, you know, commitments that we might make. Um, but if you actually commit to someone else, um, that changes the psychology. Um, and so, so it's committing to others, which is a really important step. And the other one is, is we should baseline ourselves. We shouldn't um, compare ourselves with others. So, um, so um, baseline yourself and, and, and improve on your own footprint um, rather than trying to compare yourself with some other people because amongst other things that automatically brings a competitive element whereas this should be you know much more about uh, doing good things rather than competition um, but secondly of course is that we don't know how rigorous that alternative baseline was and so so I think it's it's really about um, you know looking at yourself um, and and seeing yourself in the mirror and figuring out what you can do yeah yeah so I think we've got one last question Wow, five set questions. Do you have like a final slogan or quote or a mantra that you live by that you want to leave our listeners with? Ooh, I don't have a particular mantra, um, but probably sort of one, one of the um, one of the underlying sort of things that I've lived with, which came from my mum actually. Uh, was was also always the concept the concept of um, be useful. Um, you know, so don't don't live a life which is useless. Um, uh, actually, live a life which, which is useful. And useful. How would you define useful? Useful like has purpose and meaning and con contributes. I left it ambiguous yeah, um, okay. because because I think it is it is a very personal thing. So yeah. it depends on your own values, um, yeah. uh, and so um, so you can fill in that space yourself. But yeah. from my perspective, um, you know, usefulness really is it is about purpose. Is that you know you, I leave a, a planet which is you know better off than it would otherwise have been. Um, I think it's uh, um, about living a good life. What I think of as a good life. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. Yeah, I think. Um, that has been a very rich conversation and it's actually filled me with a lot of um, hope and satisfaction. Like I feel, you know when you have really good conversations and you feel full? I feel, I feel we are full. Not just from my child's chocolate chip cookies that we ate beforehand <laughs> either. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Ryan. Local environment heroes saving the trees and the bees and doing it daily